Elmer Clarity, hear ye him. Good morning, I'm glad to see you. Everybody having a good morning so far? Amen. That's good because I'm about to bring it to a screeching halt. So. My requested topic this morning, since we talked about God's sovereignty in prayer yesterday, today's topic is sovereignty and suffering. Not the feel-good topic of the week, but something that we do need to consider because if you've lived long enough on planet Earth, you've suffered. So before we talk about that, though, I did get a phone call, by the way, from Elder Pickett this morning, and he did say, take your full allotted time. Apparently, I was a little short yesterday, and we were all early for lunch. So he said, take your full allotted time, and encouraging me to speak longer is a dangerous precedent. (laughs) But I'm glad you did it. Okay, I made a a, a huge mistake. I made an enormous mistake last night. Uh, As I was driving home, I turned on the news. And what a mistake that was. You know... In our society, in our politics, in our culture today, division is sort of the watchword. We're being divided up every way that you can be divided up. And in fact, if you listen to the talking heads and the pundits on the news, they will say that as a nation, we are more divided now than we've been in our last 200 years. In fact, they're dividing us by gender, men and women. Yesterday was the women's day off. Women didn't go to work. There was the women's march in Washington recently. And supposedly, you women are supposed to dislike me because I'm a man. And I'm supposed to resent you because you're women. And and I will assure you that I don't. We're being divided along cultural lines. We're being divided. There is a systematic effort out there to divide us along socioeconomic lines, uh, the 1% versus the 99%, Wall Street versus Main Street. There's all kinds of division going on out there. We're supposed to be divided according to our, uh, our race. We're supposed to be divided according to our culture. These differences are supposed to keep us from ever really liking or loving or being together or having any kind of unity together, regardless of the the division, whether it's racial, whether it's gender, whether it's cultural, whether it's socioeconomic, division, division, division. And I walk in here, and none of that exists. Because in Christ, there's neither male or female. That's gender. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. That's racial. There's either slave nor bond, which is socioeconomic. So here we are all together. Here we are regardless of our ethnic differences or our gender differences or our socioeconomic differences. We're all here, and that is just grace in action, and I am so happy to see it. 
I'm so thankful for it. Now, I got to tell you a funny story. Uh, I'm going to take my keys out of my pocket. I don't know why I have my keys. If suddenly the sermon goes bad, I'm going to bolt. That's right. No. I was going to ask Robert Spickard if it was okay to tell this story, but he's not here, so I'm just going to assume his permission. David, is it okay if I tell about the picture that we looked at last night? Okay. So Robert Spickard showed me a picture last night that he said he had showed David previously. And it was of a man standing with a a fish he had just caught. And he was wearing a baseball cap. And he's standing there with a fish. His head was bent down and he was holding up a fish and he's standing in the bright sunlight. And apparently David, when he first saw it, said, Is that Jim? I don't fish, so I knew confidently it was not me. Now hold on to that thought. I'll get back to it. A couple of years ago, I'm at Main Street Baptist Church. So is Bo Hammock. All week long, I kept being confused for Bo Hammock. Elder Ward's reason for that happening is he said, we all look alike. <laughs> Tuesday night, J.P. West stood up here and couldn't tell the difference between David Morris and me. And to the people sitting near me in the back, I said, that's because we all look alike. So now back to the picture. You know who the picture was of? Henry Watson. Apparently, you have joined the We All Look Alike Club. My twin. I like it. Because anytime I get... (laughs) Anytime I get confused for somebody that tall, I'm happy. That was a good day for me. Okay, so yesterday we talked about God's sovereignty in prayer. And we stopped right at the point where we were about to introduce another important concept. It is that God, in his authority, in his sovereignty, in his control over all things, in his ability to declare the beginning from the end and then use his almighty power to make sure that all things work out exactly the way he said they were going to work out as he is accomplishing all his good pleasure and his will, he uses occasionally means. Do you know what I mean by that? I was standing in the kitchen the other day. Well, the other day. It was last summer. To me, the other day. And I looked out the kitchen window and I noticed that there was a wasp's nest being built right up at the top of the windowsill. And so I decided that wasp's nest could not continue. It had to go away. So I told my son that he needed to get the can of wasp killer and he needed to go outside on the porch and he needed to spray the nest and kill the wasps. And then he needed to get a broom and knock down the wasp's nest. Now, it was my idea. It was my intention 
It was my plan that the wasps die. I used means. I used wasp killer spray in the hand of my son. So my son actually accomplished it, but it was my plan. Okay, well, that's exactly the way that God works. God intends things. He declares things. He determines things, but he also works sometimes through secondary causes. Now, this is the tough part for us. One of the primary secondary causes, one of the primary means that God uses in the world today is Satan himself. That's hard for us to imagine, but think it through with me. Think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for a moment. God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of that tree. Well, then why put the tree in the garden? If you really don't want them to eat of it, put it somewhere else. We know east of Eden exists. That's where they end up going. Put it out there. Put it somewhere else. And then the serpent is in the garden having a conversation with Eve. Why did God allow that? God knew that the serpent was in the garden. God knew full well that there's a conversation going on between the serpent and the woman. Why would he even allow that to happen? Why did he provide both the temptation and the cause for the fall? He provided the tree, don't eat of the tree, and then he sent the tempter to tempt them to eat of the tree. Okay, now at that point, God could have put Satan in the lake of fire forever. He could have at that point, since we know he does it in the book of Revelation, we know that ultimately he's going to put Satan in the lake of fire. Why didn't he do it right then? Should have. Makes sense to me, he should have. It's because Satan still has a role to play in God's cosmology. Otherwise, he'd have been eliminated immediately. Because God uses means. Now, all the way through the Bible, we see that God brings trouble to people. But then we are so often asked as uh, folks who believe in the Calvinistic sovereign grace, omnipotence of God, the critics will then say to us, well, then you are saying that God is the author of sin. And we have to understand how God uses Satan to be able to say that, no, God is not the author of it as if the sin emanates from him. There is no sin within God, and therefore sin cannot emanate from him. But he can use means of Satan to bring about the trouble and the sin in his world. Why would he bring trouble and sin into his world? so that his son could be glorified in saving people who had fallen. So there had to be a fall. So there had to be a garden. So there had to be the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There had to be a serpent. There had to be a conversation with Eve. There had to be a fall so that there could be a savior. So in the ultimate plan of God, he used the means of Satan in order to accomplish the thing he was planning to do. And in your life, in your sojourn here on planet Earth, you are going to go through times of trouble. 
You're going to go through times of peril. You're going to go through times of feeling pain and feeling loss. Every once in a while, things are going to happen that you just didn't see coming, that you would rather not have happen. But they happen anyway. And one of the most difficult parts of understanding God's sovereignty when we pray is to then be able to accept, having prayed to him, that whatever he does, it's hard to accept that. To just say, well, I've prayed. Well, I've brought my petitions to God. Well, I've said to God, this is what I would rather have happen. This is how I would rather live my life. I'd rather be happy in rainbows all the time. I would rather have the bluebird of happiness and I would rather sing Kumbaya with all my brothers and sisters nonstop every day. But it doesn't work out that way. And so we pray and then we trust that the God who is sovereign is sovereignly bringing these things into our life for a purpose. Here's the next real important point. If God in His sovereignty does not have a purpose for the trouble He takes you through, then that means there is purposeless pain in God's universe. That makes God capricious and that makes God cruel. Only if you understand God's sovereignty, only if you understand God's complete control over absolutely everything, can you recognize and find comfort in the fact that God, in His control of your life, has brought this trouble into your life for a purpose. And that gives you the ability to get through it. Look, isn't that exactly what Paul wrote to the Corinthians? Because we all have a tendency to think when we're going through struggles, when we're going through trials, we have a tendency to think, why me? The answer is, why not you? When did you become different than the rest of the human race? As part of the human race, you're going to go through struggles and trials. And so, Paul could write to the Corinthians, there is no trial taken you, but such is common to man. This is what the earthly sojourn is all about. And where does he find a solution to the fact that trouble is common to man? God is faithful. That's the next thing Paul wants you to know. There is no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not tempt you beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. He knows what you can take. He knows what you can stand. And he knows the difference between training you and breaking you. Here's a good question. Uh, we'll find out if it's a good question. How many of you have ever been in such a trial, so much pain, so much trouble, that you heard yourself saying, this is going to kill me? Yeah. Okay, so of you who just raised your hands, how many of you died? <laughs> oh, it is a good question, huh? Oh, good. Okay, so you thought it was going to kill you. And it didn't kill you. Why? Because God is faithful. 
and will provide. With that temptation, with that trial, he's going to provide the way of escape. You know, the Bible says, as thy day, so shall thy strength be. I take that quite literally. If I wake up and and I feel kind of weak and I don't feel good, I think, good, it's going to be an easy day. Apparently, God thinks this is all the strength I need. If I wake up and I'm ready to take on the world, I feel great. I feel 21 again. That never happens. I wake up thinking, man, I'm ready to go. The next thought is, I better go back to bed because apparently this is going to be a bad day. If God thinks I need this much strength to get through it, because as thy day is social, thy strength be. Okay, so now let me personalize it. And I know that every one of you has your own personal story. You could personalize it. But I stood here last year, taught for three days, felt fine, felt pretty good. Well, I knew I was having some vision problems. I knew I was having some headaches. I knew I had high blood pressure. But I ignored it. Why? Because I'm a man. And <laughs> you take a couple Tylenol, you just keep going. That's what I did. You get up and you go. Just go. Just go. I left here. Two weeks later, I had a stroke. Ended up in the hospital. My right arm, my right hand, gone. Can't do a thing about it. Right leg, gone. Can't talk, which is really tough for a preacher. Yeah. Can't swallow, can't eat. I was NPO, nothing by mouth, for several days in the hospital. Now I have to backtrack and tell you that a year ago, Halloween, my mother had a massive stroke, left her permanently paralyzed on the left side of her body. She's in a nursing home today. And in that time, she has suffered several subsequent strokes. She's truly, in the most genuine form of the word, she is truly pathetic at this moment. So I'm laying in the hospital, I've had a stroke, and I'm realizing this can be the rest of my life. I might never preach again. I have no idea what I'm going to do financially to keep us going. I'm just at my wits and in my own self-determination. I'm in the hospital, hooked up to machines, without any hope of recovering physically, except that God decided that he wasn't done yet. God decided. (laughs) Here, I'll make it easy. Look at me! I'm fine. Everything God took away, He gave back. And with everything He gave back, it was like Christmas Day every day. It was like, oh, look, I can do this. (laughs) Oh, look, I can squeeze things. Oh, look, my arm works. Oh, look, I got up every day excited, like, what do I get today? Today, something else is going to come back. And so now, not to dwell on it, but I've recovered completely because God is faithful. And if I have learned anything through that process, 
I've learned to be thankful for all the little things that I used to take for granted. I took for granted that I can walk. I took for granted that I can pick things up. I took for granted that I could say words. And then God took all that away, stripped me down to nothing so that I could learn to yet again tell him thank you for every little thing. So I know firsthand, the reason I told you that story is I know firsthand that suffering has purpose. I know it theologically, and now I know it experientially. I hope I've learned my lesson and that God is content to just let me go for a while now. But if he brings another trial into my life... I'm going to have more confidence during that trial because he took me through the previous one. And with each successive trial he gets us through, we have more and more confidence and faith in God to get us through the things that he brings into our lives that we think are going to kill us. And so at some point you realize, you know, it's all you. It's completely you. I know my own name. That's you. I took another breath. That's you. I walked up these steps. You know what a big deal that was? I was on a walker for a while. After that, I was on a cane. My friend Barney Johnson said, keep the cane. No, I want to lose the cane. I want to be able to walk. And, and God allowed me to do all those things. Now, I'm sure that you could all personalize and you could all tell your stories of how God was truly faithful in getting you through the trials of this life. But understand that the trials are part of God's sovereign purpose in your life. People who don't understand God's sovereignty ask stupid questions. They ask questions like, well, if God is all good and if God is all powerful, then why do bad things happen to good people? And the answer, of course, is there are no good people. Find me a good person. The bad things that happen happen to bad people. The grace is that God doesn't let it destroy us. The grace is that God takes us through those times of trial and teaches us experientially how to trust Him. And that's the purpose for the suffering and for the trials. I consider it an absolute crime that there are some churches that equate suffering with evil or with the devil as if the Bible was teaching the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. And here's my thinking about the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, by the way. It seems to me that if that is what the Bible actually is teaching if that is the proper understanding of the gospel, you would think that at least one of the apostles would have done it. And nobody did it. They died martyrs' deaths. They suffered because they came in contact with Christ. Think about Paul's life. His life's going good. He's powerful, he's rich, he's influential. His life is going good until he encountered Christ. 
And from that point forward, it was nothing but struggles and trials. 1 Timothy chapter 6, start at verse 3. Listen to Paul having gone through everything that he's gone through. Listen to him talk about the prosperity gospel. He says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, that means whole, healthy words, if they don't believe the sound teaching of the Bible, those from our Lord Jesus Christ, and if they don't agree with the doctrine conforming to godliness, then that person is conceited and understands nothing. And yet they permeate the airwaves. They're on TV all day long. They're on radio all day long telling you that you're going to come to Jesus and everything's going to get good. You come to Jesus, you can get a bigger house, you can get a better car, and you're going to run faster and jump higher, and your children are going to be great, and it's just going to be every day of your life is just going to get better and better. That didn't happen for any of the apostles. He is conceited and he knows nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy and strife and abusive language and evil suspicions and constant friction between men of depraved minds and deprived of the truth. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain? But godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we can take nothing out of it either if we have, there it is, food and raiment, if we have food and raiment with these, let us be content. Now, contentment, I find one of the most elusive of all human qualities. It's very, very rare that I meet a truly content person. When I was a young man, boy, I had all that testosterone rushing through me. The last thing I was content. I was angry. I was anxious. I wanted to get things done. I wanted to rule the world. I wanted to hit the heights. I was never content. No matter how much I got, no matter how much I did, no matter how much I accomplished, there was always more, 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 more. I was never content. Do you know how I learned contentment? Suffering. Because let's be honest again. Let's not play games. When are you more devoted to prayer? When everything's good? Bluebird of happiness, rainbow, yahoo, kumbaya. Is that when you're really seeking out God and praying? Is that really when you need the help of the Holy No. You're too busy being a self-made man. You're too busy thinking, isn't this great Babylon which my hand has built? You're too busy thinking, me. And the culture again permeates that kind of thinking. Self-made man, Nike, just do it. Me, number one. 
I'm okay, you're so-so, that kind of thinking. But let God throw some trouble on you. Let God throw some pain on you. Let the doctor use the word cancer. Let the cop call your house and say your child's in an accident. All of a sudden, you don't care about any of the stuff in this world. You don't care about your next accomplishment. You care about one thing. Help me, God. Now, now if I can figure that out, I'm not that bright. Sean Kennedy was sitting here agreeing with me, nodding furiously. And I figure that if Sean Kennedy can figure that out, so can God. God knows. God knows that when you get comfortable, when you get happy, when you get fat and sassy, you don't care about him. He knows full well that the way to get your attention and draw you back to him is trouble, is pain, is sorrow. Think about it in the Bible. Time and time again, the nation of Israel, and you can read it all the way through, the the history of Israel in the Old Testament. Once they had entered the promised land, God gave them peace and safety from all their enemies. He even drove out the wild animals. They were living in the land of milk and honey, and he planted them there in their land, and then he protected them. So what did they do in response? Chase foreign gods, intermarry with the surrounding nations. We don't need God. We're fine. Have you seen our land? We got plenty. Everything's good. We feel good. So then God would bring down their enemies on them. And then they would cry out, Oh, God, aren't we your people? Deliver us. God would send them initially. He sent them judges. That's what the book of Judges is about. He would send them somebody to lead them, to fight for them. And then they'd be okay again. And then that first generation would say, wow, God has delivered us, let's worship God. The next generation would go, you know, I'm not as interested in that God thing as my parents were by the time the third generation came around. We don't care about God. We're safe. We're fed. We're clothed. We're fine. So then God would bring their enemies down on them. And then they'd have to fight again. And then there's warfare and bloodshed. And all that has to happen again. So that they will cry out again for God. And you see it in the book of Judges over and over and over and over again. And you think smart people at some point would realize the pattern. And go, you know, every time we do that... God punishes us. Maybe we shouldn't ought to do that. But no, because human beings are so corrupt, so sinful, because we want our own way so much, because we're so fond of ourselves, because we like ourselves way too much, as soon as our lives get easy, we forget about God. And we go right back to our old ways, starting to think, I did this. I did this. It's all good because I worked hard. It's all good because I provide. And then God will say to you, as he did to me, time for you to lay down. 
it's time for you to not talk and not eat. In fact, you can't write. I'm taking your right hand. I'm taking everything that adds to your self-sufficiency. But I'm going to teach you an important lesson through the things that I'm going to make you suffer. Think about Jeremiah for a moment. Jeremiah preached for 40 years. He was right. History tells us he was right. If you look at the history of the Middle East and you look at the Babylonian Empire and how Babylon conquered Israel and how they lived for 70 years in Babylon, then you can see consistently across the board, Jeremiah was right. He preached for 40 years while he was right. You know how many converts he had? None. No converts. That means if you show up on Sunday morning and somebody else shows up, you're ahead of Jeremiah in this thing. <laughs> Jeremiah felt so bad about his own life that he wrote in Jeremiah 15.10, he wrote, Woe to me, woe to my mother, that you have borne me as a man of strife and a man of contention with the whole land. I have not lent, nor have men lent money to me, and yet... Everybody curses me. This is an unhappy guy. But he was right. But he was godly. But he followed hard after everything God said. And he suffered, suffered, suffered. So what makes you think that you ought to do any better? Here's an important principle to hang on to. God is too holy not to do that which brings him the greatest glory. He will always do the things that bring him the greatest glory. And he loves you too much not to do what brings you the greatest good. Isn't that what Paul said? All things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Which means everything he's doing is right and good and purposeful and will ultimately lead to your faith and your salvation, your glorification and you standing before his throne in the light that men don't approach. He's going to invite you to come be part of his everlasting glory in praising and worshiping his son. We're all going to be gathered to his son for the purpose that we will see the son's glory and he's doing all that for us, our ultimate good, and he realizes the ultimate good is brought about by the trouble. Now, it would be great if God figured out how to get us to heaven without the trouble. That'd be great. In fact, I love Philippians 1.29 because the first part of it says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not for your sake, but it's been granted to you for Christ's sake so that he has a people who will worship and glorify him forever so that he will have a people who always have to look to him as their redeemer, as their savior. For Christ's sake, it has been granted to you that you would believe in him. I wish there was a period right there. I wish that sentence stopped right there. For Christ's sake, it's been granted to you to believe. Wouldn't that be a great and easy gospel to preach? I could say that to people everywhere. Come on, I got good news for you. 
If you believe in him, then it's been granted to you for Christ's sake to believe in him. Comma. The end of the sentence says, and also to suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you to believe and it's been granted to you to suffer. Granted to you. It's been granted to you. Why? Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. That whom the Lord loves, he scourges. That's the word for spanking. That's the word for correction. We'll look at that verse in more detail in just a moment. So here's the reason for the, for the suffering. The reason for the suffering is so that we don't start thinking too much of ourselves. As I said a few minutes ago, we like ourselves way too much. And the purpose of the suffering is to keep us humble. The purpose of the suffering is to make sure that we don't start thinking, well, of course God likes me. Dig me. Of course God likes me. Why wouldn't he? I'm not like those people. I mean, those people, they deserve some trouble. But me, I'm the good one. Here's how Paul put it. Writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 7. He said, and because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, the revelations of God that had been given to Paul so that he could reveal things that weren't known previously. He uses the word mystery several times, previously unrevealed truths. Because he was able to reveal that God was going to bring Gentiles to be saved by the Jewish Savior, because of these great and surpassing revelations, for this reason... To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me. Do you know what that means? Buffet means to get punched around the face. A messenger of Satan beating me up constantly. So what does he do? He does the right thing. He asks God to to remove it, to keep me, he's very specific, to keep me from exalting myself. That's why the messenger of Satan, again, God using secondary means in order to accomplish his will, he sends Satan, he allows Satan's messenger to buffet Paul, to keep Paul humble. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, Okay, fine, you talked me into it. I wasn't going to. The first time, not convinced. Second time, probably not. Third time, that did it. That did the trick. God removed the thorn. That's not what it says. It's the way we think. It's what we want. Come on, God, I'm in pain. Don't you know how much I'm suffering? Don't you feel empathetically what I'm going through? I want you to remove this from me. And God's answer is, my grace is sufficient 
for you. My grace, my faithfulness is going to get you through this when I believe, when I am convinced that it has done the work I designed it to do in you. Many years ago, 13 years ago to be exact, my life blew up. I mean, I thought prior to the stroke, I thought that was like the worst thing that ever happened to me. My life just blew up. And in the midst of all my trouble and my pain and my sorrow, Elder Ward called me. And, uh, and he began the conversation with, why am I calling you? <laughs> and I said, well, I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. I, was, I, I don't know. And he said, really, Jim? Have I been such a poor friend to you that you don't know that you could call me, I'm going to quote him, and pour all your crap in my lap and that I would not condemn you, but I would hold you while you scream and kiss you while you cry? How do you not know that? Okay, so now I know I'm talking to a friend. So I explained the situation. I told him everything that was going on. It was horrific. I told him all about it. And at the end of it, he said, Jim, never forget that this is the process through which God is making you into the man you're going to become. Now, when he said it to me, I'm in the midst of my pain and struggles and trials. When he said it to me, I didn't get it. Now, 13 years later... I get it completely. And as bad as that was, I wouldn't have missed it for the world because it made me into the person I now am. So that's what Paul is saying. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan sent to buffet me to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. So if his power is perfected in your weakness, what's he going to do to perfect his power? He's going to make sure you're weak. He's not going to make you stronger so that you can be self-sufficient. He's going to make you weaker so that you are completely dependent on Him. The big word these days in America is independent. We even have a day, Independence Day. Independent. I'm an independent person. I do what I want, go where I want. Independence is the opposite of genuine Christianity. Real Christianity is all about your dependence on God. So that you can get up every day and you can function based on the fact that you are dependent on the power of the Almighty One. And He'll teach you that. If He loves you, He'll teach you that. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul writes, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Which sounds 
the opposite of the way that we naturally think. We think when I'm strong, I'm strong. When I'm weak, I'm weak. But in the Christian economy, when you are weak and dependent, that's when you're strong. So I'm going to skip a little forward because even though James Guyot was able to borrow some time from J.R. Banks, the only person left for me to borrow time from is David Morris, who's coming up here after me, which he's my friend. I'm perfectly willing to steal some time from him, except that tomorrow morning he preaches before me and he'll take it back. Think of all the people in the Bible that suffered greatly. Think about Job. We just heard about the man born blind. Think about the man born blind. I'm going to piggyback on you for just a moment, James, but think about the man born blind because his apostles did ask Jesus the question, who sinned that this man was born blind? And because he was old enough to give an answer for himself in front of the council, that means that he was at least 30 years old. And so for 30 years or more, he lived completely blind from birth. And the apostles wanted to lay blame somewhere. They wanted a reason for it. And so they asked, why? Was it him or his parents? Now, is it him is just a funny question. What could he have possibly done in the womb that was so bad that God went, that's it, you're going to be blind. That's it. Was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus' answer was, neither one. This didn't happen because anybody sinned. Because we as human beings naturally think when we see somebody struggle, when we see somebody suffer, the first thing we just naturally think is, what did you do? What did you do that God would treat you like this? And Jesus' answer was, neither of them sinned, not the parents, not the baby. He says, this man was blind for more than 30 years so that when I got here, there'd be a blind man to heal so that people could see me work the works of God through him. God is perfectly willing to make you suffer and make you suffer for years so that he can show his glory in you. Isn't that remarkable? I have a friend who lives in California who recently passed away. She used to come every year from California out to GCA, the place where I pastored, join us for our homecoming weekend. She died this year. When I got the email that said that she had been diagnosed with cancer, her answer to the doctor was, that's my ticket home. God put cancer on the woman so that she could testify to the goodness of God. God in His providence, in His sovereignty, works through all these struggles and these trials so that He can glorify Himself. And if you have to go through the the trouble, if you have to go through the trial, if you have to struggle for a while, He's perfectly willing to do that in the glorification of Himself. Which, if that were the only reason, again, would make him seem cruel. But he's also doing it for your good. He's also humbling you. He's also teaching you faith. He's also teaching you to look for him, to look to him for your sufficiency. And it is that faith that becomes the trading commodity in heaven. That's what he exchanges for righteousness. And you want Christ's righteousness. 
And in order to get Christ's righteousness, you have to have faith in Christ. And in order to develop your faith in Christ, He is willing to make you suffer so that you'll have the faith that He will trade for His righteousness. That's how God works. We don't have time to get into Job. But you know, Job suffered greatly. Job's three friends came to him and said, just admit it. Just say you did something. Because God would never do this to you if you didn't do something. And Job retained his integrity until his own wife finally came to him and said, will you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. So everybody's against him until he finally says, if God were here right now, I'd demand of him and he'd answer me. And God shows up. <laughs> says, really quit you like a man, which basically means stand up on your hind legs. Just, just stand up here and I'm going to ask you questions and you're going to answer me. Where were you when I did everything? I did everything. Where were you? So then who are you to question the way I do things? Turn with me to Philippians 3 for a minute because I want you to see this whole section. So here's Paul talking about how powerful he was, all the authority that he had, and how it is that God brought him to the point where he was dependent on Christ and how when that happened, he understood that there was nothing in this world, nothing in this world, that was worth clinging to, to gain Christ. Starting at Philippians 2, no, Philippians 3, chapter 2. I'm going to say it again. Starting at Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. I blame the stroke for that one, by the way. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. In other words, once upon a time, I had it all. If anybody could be confident in their flesh, <laughs> me first. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day. Okay, that identifies him as a descendant of Abraham. That puts him right there in the heart of Israel. He's one of the chosen elect people. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Dig me. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Sure, there's those standard everyday run-of-the-mill Hebrews. But when it comes to being a really Hebrew Hebrew, when you, I'm the Hebrew I, of the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I didn't just keep the law. I condemned other people who didn't keep the law. That's the kind of power I had. As to zeal, 
I was a persecutor of the church. That's the kind of zeal for Israelites and for Hebrewism that I had. As far as the law of God, I knew every little jot and tittle and I was ready to point out anybody who didn't do it and anybody who was a follower of the way, following this Jesus character, I was persecuting them. I was killing them. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. His attitude toward himself was, I've never done anything wrong. Before the law, I can stand there and say, I got it. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I am blameless. I am zealous. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But, but, but whatever things were gained to me, all those things were gained to him. All those things gave him standing in the society. All those things gave him power, wealth, and might. All those things were gained to him. Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, Paul is trying to be shocking. He's using a word right there. It's translated rubbish. That's a nice translation. He used a very street word that if it were translated into the modern lexicon, it would be the exact word you're thinking of right now. It's refuse. It's nothing. All this great stuff that he used to brag about. Hebrew of the Hebrews, before the law, blameless, powerful. I had writs in my hand from the very people who, who ruled the temple, who thought that I was so great that they were willing to give me the responsibility to go out and find people who were in the way and bring them back to Jerusalem so that they could be killed. That's how powerful I was. And all of that, I consider the very word you're thinking of right now. All of that. Why? For the surpassing glory of Christ. And that I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Notice a minute ago He said, before the law, blameless. I got that law thing. Now He said, I don't believe that the law can achieve my righteousness in any wit. In fact, I consider all of that self-righteousness to be refuse. Not having my own righteousness that is derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. And righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, 
but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold on. I want to grasp that thing that has grasped me. I didn't go get it. I didn't figure God out. He wasn't looking for Christ. Think about Paul's conversion. What was he doing? He was killing Christians. When the light comes down from heaven and the voice from heaven, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul's answer was, who are you? He knew nothing about Christ. Nothing. Which means, by the way, that he was not a seeker. He was not looking for Christ. He didn't expect to find Christ. He was busy persecuting those who believed in Christ. And Christ came to him. There was no way he was going to get to Christ. Left to himself, left to his own mind, left to his own ego, he was going to continue bragging that before the law, he had it down. Hebrew of the Hebrews. Blameless. That's Paul's estimation of himself. So think about it now. God, through Christ, is going to convert Paul and make him the chosen vessel who's going to preach before kings and Gentiles and nations, and he knows he's going to do all that. So what is the method by which God gets him from Paul the persecutor to Paul the apostle to the Gentiles? Something had to happen in the middle there. He couldn't go right from persecutor to preacher. Something had to change in him. What was the method that God used in order to make Paul the preacher he intended him to be? suffering. That's what he told Ananias. Ananias argued with God. Why would you bring Paul here? Don't you know who that is? He's killing Christians. And God says, he's a chosen vessel unto me. And I'm going to show him what great things he has to suffer for my sake. So this is the, the process again. This is the way that God has chosen to humble us, to bring us into conformity to his will. That's the very thing we are predestined to. Paul says that we are going to be ultimately conformed to the image of his son. And how was his son perfected? Through suffering. Now, if you think you're going to be the first Believer in God and Christ on the planet to not suffer? Then you think that you somehow deserve better than Jesus did. He suffered and that's why we suffer. Because God made the captain of our salvation perfect through suffering. A few minutes ago I mentioned that we just have the natural tendency to think that if somebody goes through suffering, goes through a trial, goes through a problem, we have the natural tendency to think that they must have done something. But Jesus confronts that very question. In Luke 13, if you want to look at it, starting at verse 1, Jesus approaches that question and gives the answer that they did not expect. Starting at verse 1 of Luke 13, on the same occasion... 
there were some present who reported to him, to Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So there was a slaughter at Pilate's hand. And people heard about it, and their first thought was, what did those Galileans do? They must have done something or else God wouldn't have brought this on them. And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffer this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you suppose that they were worse culprits than all the other men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. By nature, we deserve the perishing part. And it's our natural tendency to start comparing, thinking horizontally, thinking, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. We just naturally start thinking, look, I, I'm not, I'm going to pick a name out of the hat here. I'm not Hitler. I didn't do that. I'm not Pol Pot. You know, I'm not Madonna. I, I, I'm not as bad as those people. Therefore, I must be relatively better than them. Those people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, well, I must be slightly better than them because the tower didn't fall on me. And if a tower falls down, that's got to be the sovereignty of God. God killed those people because those must have been the really bad people. The standard, the comparison, is not whether or not you are slightly better than me. And I guarantee you you are better than me. That's not the standard. If I could draw it on a chart and draw a line and say, okay, this is, this is saints right here on this line. Now, below this line where the saints are, there's the lower line of like the bad people. That's where the Hitlers, the Pol Pots, the Madonnas, that's where they hang out. And then slightly above that line, there's David Morris or the Pope, or, you know, whoever you're going to say is slightly better, you know. But then, if from the very top line of the very best people who ever lived on planet Earth to the line that is God's righteousness, that line would have to be so infinitely high that the distance between the best and the worst person becomes negligible. It becomes nothing because the righteousness that God is satisfied with is not that you were slightly better than me. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're the ones that were trying. They're the ones that were doing the law as best they could. They were trying to establish their own self-righteousness. And Jesus said, unless your righteousness is better than theirs, which means he leveled the playing field and said, nobody's righteous. Nobody's good enough. You have to be as good as them and they're not good enough. 
unless your righteousness exceeds them. You will in no wise see the kingdom of God. Not going to see it. So where are you going to get that kind of righteousness? You can't accomplish it by yourself. It has to be imputed to you. It has to be Christ's righteousness given to you as a gift. And ever since Abraham, when God declared that Abraham's faith was going to be exchanged for righteousness, ever since then, God has been in the enterprise of making sure that his people have the faith that he can exchange for righteousness. And the method that he uses to get us from where we are to where he intends we're going to be, to get us from God-hating, non-believing heathens all the way to people who have faith in Christ, he uses trouble and trials and struggles so that we have to be completely dependent on him and then glory to God because he takes us through that trial and develops our faith. When we get to him, he's going to look on us as if we have the very faith of Christ which he himself developed in us in the trials that he took us through. It's all him. Can you see now why we're going to say, well, glory to God. And I guarantee you, five minutes into heaven, you're going to go, you know all that trouble I went through? Those struggles, those trials? Worth it. Completely worth it. Whatever you had to take me through, good plan. Ecclesiastes 7.13 says, Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? Because once in a while, God is in the enterprise of bending things. The disciples all suffered. You don't need me to read all these verses. I've got plenty of notes. And my notes will be on my website later on if, if you want to go th- through and read the parts that I, I just can't for time. But his disciples all suffered. I would like us all to look at Hebrews 12. So go there. Because I think this perfectly sums up what God is doing. Understand that God does not put people through suffering because he hates them. He puts people through trials because he loves them. For all of you who are parents, how many parents do we have here in the room? That's a lot of parents. How many of you hate it when the preacher asks you to raise your hand? How many of you hate that? Okay, never mind. When you punished your children, did you punish them because you hated them? No. If you hated them, you'd be indifferent. Love is not the opposite of hate. The opposite of love and the opposite of hate is indifference. You just don't care. And so if, if God were indifferent toward you, then he would not invest the time that it takes to correct you. And the reason that you correct your children is because you love them so much that you don't want them to grow up to be spoiled brats and you don't want them to end up on the streets and in jail. So you teach them the right way to act. You drive the wildness out of them. You bring obedience to them. And that's exactly the way God acts according to Hebrews 12. 
which starts at verse 4 by saying, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. By the way, if any of you start to think, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I'm really striving against sin. I'm really working against I haven't done anything bad so far today. I almost had a bad thought, but I kind of drove that out. I'm doing good. You haven't yet striven unto blood. Jesus did. Jesus, because of your sin, he bled out for it. So don't start thinking, well, I, I, got this, I got this sin thing covered. I got it okay. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. That means when you're trained up by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Which means if you are under the discipline of God, you really ought to be saying, instead of why me, you ought to be saying, thank you. Because you're disciplining me, you're correcting me, and you are demonstrating that I am your child. Because if I weren't your child, you wouldn't be doing this. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, it is for discipline that you endure. For God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all those who are in God have become partakers, notice that, all those that are in God have all participated in this discipline. If you're without discipline, then you're an illegitimate child and you're not sons. Have I got the King James up behind me here? And then you're bastards and not sons. You might be pretending you're a son. You might be going to church and doing the rigmarole and bending and scraping and stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. You may be showing up on a regular basis and singing the hymns and just doing all the church stuff. But if you haven't been through the discipline, you're a bastard. So he says, without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. My dad was a fierce disciplinarian. And if we didn't respect his discipline, he'd discipline us more. So we not only got disciplined, but we had to respect the discipline. He used to lie to me and say things like, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Liar! <laughs> it's going to hurt me a lot more. <laughs> My dad was a firm disciplinarian, but you know what? I love my dad. 
because he made me into the person that I became as far as being a, a person who knows how to operate in society and how to take care of myself and how to be fair with people and how to be a gentleman. My dad taught me that. But he taught me that through discipline. And so the writer of Hebrews says, we have earthly fathers that discipline us and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits? And live. I love that part because he's saying as we become subject through the discipline to the Father of lights, the end result of that is going to be that we will ever live. He's doing it for our good. For they, our earthly fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. What does that mean? It means that God is determined that His people, the people He loves, the people He's chosen before the foundation of the world, His saints, His elect, He has determined that His people are ultimately going to be righteous. And they are going to show the fruit, the work of righteousness. And the way that He is going to bring that out of them is the same way that any good agriculturalist knows how to prune a plant so that it brings forth fruit. He's going to prune away at you all the difficulties, all the ego, all of the self-sufficiency. He's going to prune all that off until you bring forward the peaceable fruit. Notice it's not just fruit, it's peaceable fruit. There's finally going to be peace between you and God, a peace that passes understanding, the peace that allows you to hear the word cancer and say, that's my at home. The peace that brings contentment, the kind of contentment that other human beings can't possibly understand. How can you, in the midst of your trouble, in the midst of your struggles, how can you be content with that? How can you reach that point of just being happy with whatever God does? Well, He's going to teach you that through taking you through the struggles and the trials and the correction and the afflictions and the discipline. That's how God works. Now listen, some of us don't like that. Nobody likes the discipline when it's happening. And you know what? He doesn't care. He knows what's good for you. I knew what was best for my kids raising them and I would take them through it regardless. And it didn't matter how much they protest or how much they squirm or how much they argue or fight or run. Oh, don't ever run. You run from me, I'll catch you. I didn't care what they thought. It was time for discipline. I have taught my children. I'm nearly done. I'm nearly out of the way. I taught my children from the time they were very young, when it's time for me to discipline you, don't get further from me. Don't run from me. The safest place for you to be when I'm upset with you is as close to me as you can get. It's true. 
I don't care how angry I was at my daughter. You all met her yesterday. When I was upset with her, if she clung to my leg and looked up at me with those big doe eyes and called me daddy, okay, well, don't do it again. <laughs> it's the best place to be. Press close. When God is taking you through the trials and the tribulations and the corrections, don't run. It's just going to get worse because he's going to catch you because he's bigger than you because he's already there wherever you're going. Press close. 